0: Welcome back everyone to another episode of The New Books Network. My name is Lee Pierce. I'm your host. I'm a assistant professor of rhetoric and communication at SUNY Geneseo, New York. I use she they pronouns and I'm very excited today to be joined by the one and only Brian McCann, and that's Brian with a y, the way it's supposed to be spelled, whose new book, The Mark of Criminality: Rhetoric, Race, and Gangster Rap in the War on Crime Era, came out in 2017 from the University of Alabama Press. So shout out to Dan Waterman, who is
1: also my editor. We love Alabama Press over there for our rhetoric books. Um, Brian, are you there? I am there. Thanks for having me and for acknowledging proper spelling.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's okay if I call you by your first Absolutely,
1: name? Absolutely. And uh, he, him, pronouns, um, myself. So.
0: so I just thoroughly enjoyed this book. And obviously, um, sort of as a person who grew up in the 90s and, and more, and recently has just sort of like watched a lot of these race issues reemerge in ways that I didn't kind of understand when I was younger, it was very cool to see someone who has both uh, the the historical perspective that you didn't like necessarily live through in the same way as an adult as you did now, but also the current vantage point from which I'm also looking. So I really, really enjoyed the way you kind of worked through both time periods in the book and how you have picked different texts that kind of knit through some of the racial issues that we sort of have come to see as solved, but have not been solved in the right ways over the last like 20 or 30 years. And I guess I'll just, um, have you start with maybe a, a summary of the book from your perspective or why you wanted to write the book and what you think readers would get out of it?
1: Sure. Um, I think as a whole, um, I mean, one, one thing you know is is that was actually a really kind of cool experience for me was uh, that kind of reliving, you know, th- things that I was alive for, things I kind of knew were going on, you know, in the eighties and nineties. I mean, I remember the Willie Horton ad, uh, which was, you know, released by a pro Bush um, uh, pack during the 1988 election and pretty much destroyed, the Dukakis campaign. I mean, all that stuff was on my radar, but yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I hadn't gone to graduate school yet, right, at the age of eight. So um, it was not on my my radar in a way that led to much analysis. So, so that was kind of a, a special experience in its own right. Um, in, ter- in terms of what I see, or at least hope the book does, is um, I think speaks to kind of two kind of concurrent conversations, and obviously the intersection between those. Um, one being uh kind of the critical analysis of crime and public culture uh which is is a broad place i kind of position myself as as a writer um and a second being uh hip hop studies uh which i'm you know less less confidently positioned in you know i'm a more uh a crime guy who decided to write about hip hop than a hip hop guy who decided to write about crime but but certainly there were kind of trajectories and patterns in in hip hop scholarship and I guess with, with both bodies of scholarship, something I, I was wanting to do was confront messiness, engage gray area, right? That so much of what I at least see in terms of rhetorical and cultural studies scholarship about crime and public culture attends largely to uh, what, what I, I think I refer to in the book um, as, as a very top down analysis, right? That, that criminality as a category of performativity, particularly as I'm treated in the book of performative Black masculinity, is seen primarily, even exclusively by many scholars, as as an imposition from above, right, as as a mode of oppression. And it is that, like, there's no getting around the fact that um, the marking of Black and other racialized bodies uh, has resulted in Mass incarceration, uh, premature death, segregation, financial ruin—you know—the the list can go on and on. It's also true, and has historically been true, that criminalized populations push back, and they push back with the rhetorical norms of criminality. Um, you know, you could go to the most obvious example being Robin Hood. Um, you know, as, as your kind of go-to example of a criminal who is fashioned as heroic. Uh, a more Precise one with regard to this project, and one that I spend a fair amount of time with in the book, is the Black Badman tradition, most uh, kind of wholly embodied by Stagger Lee. Right, he was a criminalized Black man who was a centerpiece of post Reconstruction Black folklore, uh, starting in the South, but steadily making its way throughout the the continental U.S. and and here you have a very early instance of. Black folks drawing on their vernacular traditions to use kind of the criminalized black masculine body to assert varying degrees of agency, right? To kind of frame it in celebratory ways. So, so attending to criminality in that way uh, was was something I was very deeply invested in. And then, um, I guess the other side of that, with regard to hip hop studies, uh, something you see both in terms of political culture, uh, particularly political culture as expressed by white folks uh, such as Tipper Gore during the 80s and 90s, uh, but but still to this day, uh, but also in a lot of hip hop scholarship, is that gangsta rap specifically uh, is, is very often kind of relegated to this place of, you know, the problematic sibling of the more wholesome artists such as uh, Public Enemy, right, or... Immortal Technique or KRS-One um, or Arrested Development, you know, artists that were more explicitly or still are more explicitly activist in their iterations. And something I wanted to argue was that, um, for, for all the reasons I outlined about criminality, was that gangsta rap has a politics that is more than, uh, but also includes, you know, crass materialism, uh, violence, homophobia, misogyny, uh, playing into anti-Black throats of criminality. Uh, that that in addition to, to doing all those things, it is also engaging in a transgressive performance of black masculinity and black criminality that I think has something to, to teach us. Right, the fact that you know this genre emerged in earnest during the war on crime is is not an accident. And I think by by using gangsta as a as a heuristic, we come to a more complicated understanding of that era and and criminality in general.
0: That's interesting. Um, Yeah. So maybe say a little bit about that phrase, using gangsta as a heuristic, maybe like, what is a heuristic? Because again, I just don't want to leave anyone behind because you and I are so brilliant that
1: we get to use all the fancy words. (laughs) Right. No, no, no. I'm glad. I'm glad you asked. Um, Yeah. A heuristic, broadly speaking, is is kind of a a mode for for analysis or a mode for knowing, kind of a a way in is, is often kind of the way I think about it. You know, heuristics more broadly, is, is interested in ways of knowing. Um, so you know, while, while the book is definitely analyzing gangsta rap and, and other kind of iterations of, of black criminality, kind of repeated um, representations and enactments of it, uh, it's also kind of adopting gangsta as an ethic for thinking through and talking about criminality. Right. That, you know, I'm not just saying, okay, here's here's what N.W.A., Snoop Dogg, Tupac at all were kind of up to in the 90s. But here's what how what they were doing prompts us to approach criminality in, you know, more more complex and I think potentially more humane ways. Right you now, I spent a little bit of time in the conclusion, for instance, talking about uh, Trayvon Martin because I was very fresh um, in my mind and a lot of people's minds at the time of the writing. I think you could also include uh, Mike Brown, right? Who you know was on video allegedly stealing cigarellos from a from a convenience store before um, he was murdered by Darren Wilson. And you know, I think an an ethic kind of driven by the ways in which gangsta complicates and troubles prevailing ways of thinking about black criminality, invites us to maybe approach uh, Trayvon Martin's tweets, right? Um, Mike Brown's experience at the the convenience store before his death in, in a fashion that doesn't necessarily turn it into something that needs to be ignored, apologized for, or used to justify their premature deaths. So it's both object and method.
0: Yeah. And I mean, and it's an important point because, you know, when we think about a lot of the activism that's come out of Black Lives
1: Matter over the last couple
0: of years, one of the big things is to try and give depth or sort of complexity to these pathologized, criminalized versions of these black men, which is how typically like kind of we've come to expect them to be like made. um, What's what's that? Oh, it's that horrible joke. They make it in the Y or whenever there's like no. What is? It's an acronym for when there was no civilians involved in a death.
1: Oh yeah, but, no, you, but sometimes
0: I'll, they'll extend it to include like gangbangers because they don't really consider them like lives having been worth lot like worth more. Yeah. Um, and, and so one of the things I know with Trayvon too, there was, there's been this campaign that on his birthday, you're supposed to tweet something about his like identity aside from his race or his criminality, right? He was a math, he loved math. He was going to do this. He was going to do that. And so there's a kind of way in which like the opposite of criminalizing these individuals to make them disposable is to kind of decriminalize them. But you're sort of saying, well, but there's a way in which like, we forget that the mark of criminality has a rhetorical history. And the opposite of bad, we'll call it like negative criminalization isn't necessarily to decriminalize. Like, for example, it might be something to be like, so what, someone steals cigarillos from a convenience store. Does that make them like murderable by the law? Like right, like that's the question, not just oh no no he was actually a really good dude. It's like well that's but that just reinforces the idea that the criminality can't be ever be anything but just a net negative.
1: And that there's a very kind of normative idea of of which lives are, are valuable, right? I'm, uh, you know, uh, Jeffrey McCune, who's at Washington University, was was at LSU, uh, my institution, uh, a few weeks ago, and he was kind of making that point about Mike Brown that you know when we remember him, it's as a potential father, right, as a son, as a and and what what potential futures does that erase for, for someone like Mike Brown? And and I think similarly the you know, wanting to subordinate the the criminal, right, as as a performance does does that kind of work as well. You know, if he's not wholesome and angelic, he's he's not grievable.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I think imperfect grievability becomes kind of like an alternate theme for the mark of criminality in this book that I really liked. Do you want to say any more about, because the mark of criminality kind of is the driver because of course it's, it's the mark of criminality and you use, I wish, man, I wish people could see it. The, the, the hoodie graphic, the, 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 the sort of like amorphous human being, that's the black silhouette in the hoodie, but the way it's like, it uses white lines to outline the hoodie instead of kind of, so there's a weird way in which it's like binary colors instead of just the all black hoodie that we're used to thinking about when we associate with Trayvon is sort of a cool. Like that's one way that the mark of criminality gets circulated, right? Is in this image. And it was a great choice for the cover of the book.
1: Thanks. Yeah. And I was, I was super pleased with, with the work they did. I mean, I, uh, you know, Dan Waterman and I, who, who I agree is, is a marvelous guy to work with kind of had this broad kind of conversation about really wanting this kind of silhouetted hoodie figure. Um, but yeah, yeah the absolutely. work that people over there did was just, I, you know, when he, when he sent it to me as a JPEG, I'm like, all right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Cool. It's Let's perfect. I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm happy. Um, yeah, it's 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 kind of a funny story because um, and and I think this is this is true with with a lot of I know my writing and and probably a lot of other folks is that you know the thing that ends up being kind of central to the project isn't always the thing that uh, you think is going to be central to the project. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. I mean, mar- marker criminality. I think w- I, it was something I used like in one sentence, like in an early draft of the introduction, and. You know uh, uh, a colleague who was looking at it and was like, "This this is kind of rich. I, I, I like this. you know it just it just has kind of a powerful sound about it. It, it feels very descriptive, you know it kind of conjures um, you know, scarlet letter, other kinds of you know ways in which bodies are are marked it resonates with you know people like Ron Jackson and scripting of, of the black masculine body and, and, and things along those lines. So you know I kind of decided uh, to, to kind of blow that up and expand it. And, uh, that became kind of the, the key thematic throughout. And it really wasn't until the, the point at which reviewers were, were giving me feedback that the, the turn towards genre and affect, uh, really, really took off. So, you know, in, in, in so many respects, and, and I, I always like to underscore this both to, you know give give credit where credit's due even though i, I don't know who the reviewers were uh but, but to also highlight that you know all all writing is is collaborative uh the the kind of life of an evolution of market criminality as a concept um you know had had a lot of hands in it right it was it was it was a collaborative practice uh but but i think i think fundamental to it is you know over time as as i've gotten a sense of what what really interests me uh crime and culture is one of them but uh so is and kind of kind of one way i think about it is is capture and escape it's just kind of the ways things travel yeah, whether they're tropes narratives bodies you know they they move around they get pinned down but then they wiggle their way out and and you know so, to some degrees are captured but there's always something that's kind of leaking out there's some sort of remainder that doesn't quite sit still uh, kind of tracking those dynamics through uh, public discourse is uh, some, something that always appeals to me. I'm just fascinated, kind of by those those dynamics, and you know, having kind of the marker criminality as a tool for kind of naming and charting that uh, was was really helpful because you know, much of what I'm doing is you know, thinking through the ways in which. Black masculine criminality uh, finds expression, is captured, escapes, you know, is 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 contested. And you know, being able to, to name it and to define it and, and do so in a way that attends to its consistencies as well as its malleability was pretty essential to tapping into that flexibility that I think really, really underwrites it and and makes it, makes it interesting.
0: Well, yeah. And I don't know, and you may talk about this in the book. I mean, sometimes I have to spot read just because I read, so even though this is one of those books that I actually was like, man, I really wish I didn't have to interview about this because I could actually read the entire book and take like my time. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But you know, that, that, that phrase Mark is a target term, right? Like, so, but it's also like, um, it's also kind of a derogatory, like, you know, like a mark, like a mark-ass, like mark-ass trick, which is just, it's like a black English vernacular term that I just like know from around the way. But so there's this way in which the mark of criminality is like also them being marked and them mark, but them marking. And so the mark was a cool um, noun there because it's like a double mark because you are marked, but you also use it to mark and also you wield it to say mark. Right. So it was like, it's a very cool. I mean, yeah, stumbling upon that was definitely genius. Whoever pointed that out you should thank them because I I thought it made a great sort of like theme for the book.
1: Yeah, it was, it was very helpful. And I I think you're right that that theme and and other iterations shows up too. you know, I'm thinking of Ibram Kendi's book stamped from the beginning, right? You, you, you you have these various, Mm -hmm. right, right. Yeah. Whether it's marking, stamping, what have you, or scripting to, to go back to Jackson's work. Uh, Just this way of thinking through the ways in which, Discourses are are put on bodies, I mean in, in many ways it's just a generative way I think of uh, mobilizing and packaging and analysis of of performativity, which I think at the end is yeah
0: yeah and that, and and not surprisingly, that word targeted shows up a lot, so um I think especially like when you're talking about the Nick, like Nixon and and his war rhetoric, the overblown war rhetoric, uh, you know it's like he targets these racial and class inequities, but then he targets certain social welfare programs. And of course, like he targets the very people that he's, right. So he conflates the cause with the effect. And then, and then as a result, just kind of undermines the entire mission of the welfare state, which sort of then creates the socioeconomic crisis that gangster rap sort of emerges into. Yeah. And I don't know if you want to talk more about context, because you know the the, the war on crime rhetoric is kind of really familiar to rhetoricians, because so many of us kind of see it for what it is. But a lot of you know, I think for a lot of people, it was just like, oh well. But isn't there isn't there a war on crime? Like, isn't the crime really bad? And we need a war? And it's like, well, yes. And also, it was made up. So, <laughs> so sort of like maybe people at home don't necessarily have the same vantage point for this
1: that you and I do. Yeah, I think I think there was. I mean, context figured. Yeah, you know, I mean, it it does in all criticism. I, I think in this one, in in a, in a lot of respects, because there were so many, so many elements of context that I felt warranted attention. And I mean, there, there's there's a lot of stuff that didn't make it in, right? I mean, that could have, you know, gone way back to you know feudalism, right? To to you know, talk uh, what you know. Uh, Peter Linebaugh is a great historian who I like a lot, and and he kind of frames theft as a mode of class warfare. Yeah, you know, that that emerges as we know today out of the emergence of private property as as capitalism kind of crushes feudalism and, and we we enter into this new new economic period. So, you know, but there just there wasn't room to talk about feudalism in the in book about the eighties and nineties. Uh, go go figure. Uh, but in addition to attending to kind of the specific historical elements of you know what was going on in the eighties and nineties, and then stuff such as nixon kind of on the lead up uh which you know was vital both to give that context but also i always think and this is this is important with a lot of matters of social importance but i think particularly with the war on crime you know recognizing that you know it's it's not sufficient to pin this on uh republicans right that that this was a bipartisan project uh by a number of very powerful white primarily men um you know, pushing pushing for mass incarceration. Yeah, you know, Bill Clinton is is responsible for incarcerating a lot of black bodies. Yeah.
0: Oh yes, and let's make sure we all just go ahead and take a minute for my leftists out there and just acknowledge that yes, Clinton was a huge part of this. Okay. Yeah, that's an important it's really right. Thank you very much. It's really important to remember this has been like a bipartisan longstanding dismantling effort.
1: Yeah. No, it's it's been it's been around for quite a while, and, and the, the usual culprits are, are convenient and important ones. I mean, Nixon, Nixon deserves his share of the blame, for sure. Uh, he, he's not alone, though. Uh, but when you're you – know, and, and this is where kind of my background in, my commitment to an ethic uh, you know, informed by cultural studies became very important. Because you know, when you're talking about a musical genre, particularly a musical genre that relies so heavily on sampling – uh, context takes on a whole different element, right? Because you not only, it, at least for me, it, you're not only attending to okay, what's going on in South Central Los Angeles during the 80s and 90s in terms of, um, you know, Daryl Gates's LAPD, the the riots slash uprising um, after the Rodney King verdict. Uh, you also have, I mean, the the sampled music itself contributes to the context right? The, the fact that you've got these young black dudes writing lyrics that are making their elders just cringe, right? In terms of, uh, what they appear to be celebrating at the same time, they're also sampling the musicians who provided the soundtrack for civil rights, black power, et cetera. Right. So that, that kind of weaves into it, this, this generational tension that also played itself out in, in a lot of more conventional public discourse. Uh, so, you know, I found myself just just kind of realizing there's this very very diffuse and, and very multi-layered genealogy uh that that's certainly rooted in political history, uh, but also you know, pop cultural history. Uh and that's where, you know, Stagger Lee as a as a folkloric figure comes in, where black exploitation is a film genre um, becomes very significant uh the release of the film birth of a nation right is is a really important uh centerpiece um and and also understanding kind of the context of the industry right so you know in um in the chapter about g-funk right where i'm or i'm talking about dr dre and and uh, his solo work in snoop dogg yeah, there's the video for uh who am i what's my name um i may be butchering the name of that song i'm I, I maybe blanking on it um but um you know in the video you have you know a lot of outdoor parties you have dog catchers chasing the dogs that snoop Dogg just turned into along with his along with his dog pound and uh you know i was, I was watching this several times and it, it suddenly occurred to me i'm like wait this is the straight out of compton video <laughs> right it's it's you know whereas the straight out of compton video has police chasing n w a throughout the um, throughout compton uh in this video you have dog catchers chasing young black men who have magically turned into dogs right also throughout um south central Los angeles so um knowing that is yeah, you know, for, for me kind of vital to really understanding the richness of of what is going on. And the the, the song in question is who am I? What's my name? I think I might have foot flopped the uh the two. Okay, good.
0: Yeah, and, and so there's like two directions to go there. One is you bring up um Stagger Lee, who some people actually may not know who that is. And um also earlier, by the way, I said my listeners at home. That's really normative. My bad. It's a radio old radio lingo. I just meant the listeners. You can be Not in your home. I'm sure lots of people listen to this who are not at home. So I just want to make sure that I'm not like implying that you can only be a home, a home person if this works. Um, But on top of that, the stagger Lee may not be familiar. And also you kind of do a really good job, I think, early on linking this up with sort of the sort of like the African folklore trickster character as sort of like you're kind of borrowing from that tradition slash the mark of criminality sort of is part of that tradition, even if it's a very like specific iteration of it. So maybe we could do a little bit on that since you brought it up before we kind of move back into actual examples, I think, from the gangster rap era like Snoop Dogg, which I think will be really helpful to drive your point home.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I really love digging into the folklore bits. Uh, this this was not stuff I was immediately familiar with. Uh, you know, I, I was familiar with, Henry Louis Gates's work on, on the signifying monkey and, uh, you know, new, new about of exploitation cinema and, and a lot of other things, but that, uh, I kind of transition from, from the trickster to, to the bad man was, was something I, I wasn't keenly aware of. And I mean, gangsta to be clear has, has elements of both, right? So, you know, the trickster engages in, in irony, in semantic reversal, uh, in trickery, right? um, so so various trickster figures are often, you know, animals who you know are able to use various forms of hijinks to uh fool a more powerful animal, right? Or or pit two powerful animals against each other. So there's the signifying monkey, rare rabbit are, are kind of two two examples, well-known ones that come to mind. Uh and this kind of folklore worked particularly well as equipment for living on the plantation, right? Where uh, certainly there were escapes, there were insurrections, uh, there there was, you know, there were forms of resistant violence on the plantation by enslaved folks uh, for all slaves uh, to, to engage in those forms of rebellion or resistance was to take serious gambles with one's life. Um, as as they were during the Jim Crow era and, and the very present uh, in terms of black and other racialized bodies. So stories of the trickster accentuated and celebrated, you know, the notion of outsmarting or outwitting uh, the slave master, the guard, um, you know, whoever it happened to be. And, you know, it, it it provided this kind of hidden transcript that, Enslaved folks were able to, if nothing else, just kind of get some life out of by telling and conveying these stories through the oral tradition. Um, but after emancipation and the, uh, I don't want to say collapse, the annihilation through white terrorism of Reconstruction, um, you you see a decided shift from you know kind of the joyful ignorant slave to. A heavy accentuation of something that was already there, which was the sexually aggressive black masculine body, who, now that he is free, is going to come and rape all the white women, uh, and that needs to be contained, right? That, that is one of the kind of chief narratives of of Jim Crow and and contemporary anti-black racism, And it's at that time that you see Stagger Lee, Dolomite, and other bad men coming in full force, right? They are hypersexual, violent black men. Uh, You know, some of them are based on actual stories. So, you know, Lee Shelton, uh, or Stagger Lee, was a real man who did, in fact, shoot and kill a guy named Billy Lyons at a bar in St. Louis uh, during the late 19th century. And, uh, you know, went to jail you know just let a life uh but he gets made into this kind of bigger than life figure because there was something about it that that spoke to that kind of current exigency right this this period in which you know the the ignorant slave turned into the black ravenous beast, and stagger Lee became you know a a beast that was turning the discourse back on itself and providing particularly black folks who consume these stories an opportunity to even vicariously experience kind of modes of agency a lot of the scholarship on not just folklore traditions but also the history of mississippi delta blues uh which in many ways was a precursor to gangster rap you know talks about how you know fantasizing about doing violence feels good (laughs) right especially when you're
0: yeah, after especially when you're the recipient of violence for like yeah. centuries. Yeah, there's, centuries.
1: there's like a catharsis to it, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I was you know was watching an intense and kind of traumatizing battle scene last night in Game of Thrones. Um, but a lot of times, like the battles on a show like that, or um, or on an action movie, you know, they just they just feel good. You know, watching stuff blow up. Um, but and then and certainly when yeah, you as you say are are subjected to you know generations of violence up to this point there there's a certain joy in enacting the various transgression with which you are associated
0: yeah um well i think and you really did your work there right you kind of you you linked up this with its with its sort of rhetorical context which i appreciated not just in the sense of the political landscape but also that the mark of criminality and gangster up don't come out of nowhere and even the you know like even the iteration of Snoop Dogg back to Dr. Dre, which then becomes sort of like back to outwitting this. Like, right, it's really cool for you to have traced that trajectory. So I think it's good we went back over that terrain.
1: Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it, it puts the genre in a, in a very different uh, context and perspective that, that highlights its, uh, the, the political work it's doing, even if it's not self-consciously political work.
0: Right. Well, and it also I think helps to course correct for this issue that you kind of point out a couple times. You know, in the beginning of the book, and I'm not surprised. Is like, what's a white? In fact, for th- for the audience listening, um, the preface to this book is titled, "What Is It?" White Boy Listens to Gangster Rap. Yeah the white boy listens to gangster rap and you sort of talk about how growing up, this was kind of not your genre. Um, And then you kind of get involved with it as part of sort of a political awakening around some activism work you did for someone who was uh, falsely imprisoned or, or or overly sentenced. I can't remember what the word is that you use. And that, that one of the challenges of writing the book is that you have the argument and, but you're white. And so one of the ways I think that you prove that you kind of like make not make up for it, but one of the ways that you mitigate that as sort of a, maybe a potential like resistance point for your reader is you do the work of linking up the marker of criminality with sort of the African folklore tradition, because that's how you sort of, not that everyone shouldn't do that, but there's a way in which kind of like, that's how you earn the entry point into making this argument for an identity group, like on whose behalf you don't speak. So I thought that was important too, for people that are, cause you know, I'm sure there are people out there listening, like, I don't know. This guy sounds kind of white. What's What's he doing right about a gangster rap? So I just want to point out, you did your homework and I think that that matters.
1: Thanks. Yeah. And, and that was, I mean, and, and like you said, I mean, I mean, scholarship should, should always do that. Right. I, I do think though, when we're, when we're writing across experience, um, you know, demonstrably engaging in that labor is, is an important, important ethical move.
0: Although it's interesting now because I think about, like, as you were talking, I was thinking about all of these sort of this new generation of rappers like Drake and these people, I mean, who have come up and you wouldn't call them gangster rap, but but since gangster rap kind of isn't in existence anymore, it's been replaced by much more of this, I think, like cerebral kind of, like just more of a, it's the genres are blurred a little bit more. And, and, and one of the criticisms, a lot of these people get, like when you think about like Wiz Khalifa and, um, Who's the other one? I was reading this article earlier about the 10 softest rappers in the game, and they were all the big 10 bestselling, but none of them have had like criminal records, like very few of them have gone to jail. I mean, I think like T.I. went to jail for like a gun possession and got like 18 months and now he's back making Marvel movies. And so there's this critique of them as like not really having the credentials to to have the mark of criminality. But in a way, it was kind of always performative. It's just that it was much less performative, I think, for people like EZE, who, you know, like people in NWA were a little bit, I think, closer to what we might call authentic. But, I, but it was always in some ways kind of not about authenticity anyway. It was about tapping into this historical tradition of sort of like speaking truth to power through this non-conventional avenue.
1: And that's something that I found myself ta- tossing around in my mind a lot, right, that... Um... I mean, I guess asking the question of just kind of what the relevance of the project to a contemporary audience, especially a contemporary audience that is very much immersed in uh, a conjuncture that includes Black Lives Matter uh, that, you know, witnessed George Zimmerman being acquitted uh, for for the murder of Trayvon Martin and and a range of other experiences. And um, I think in that respect, uh, you know, that, I think that's why, among other things, it was important in the conclusion, for instance, to kind of take a step back and accentuate the fact that you know we're we're not exclusively talking about gangsta rap, right? As a, as a the only site of performativity with regard to the mark of criminality, right? That there there are other places and modes in which this happens, and and it's it was true prior, right? For you know, much for a period in the seventies, the it was film, right. Um, by, by way of black exploitation. So you know, put, put it in, in conversation, I guess with the, the present moments was, um, what was its own challenge. And, um, you actually just reminded me of, um, I, every spring I teach a class called crime communication and culture, which is, um, basically Brian gets to teach about his research interests for a semester and, and enjoys it. Um,
0: <laughs> oh, trust yeah, me yeah. that's every it's semester for me um, so
1: no shame in that. And you know, we were talking, actually I mean I have an entire unit where I talk about uh, stagger Lee's kind of the focal point but then I kind of link it back to or link it forward to hip hop, right? And you know, I'm 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 in a room with, you know, students who for the most part were born and like, you know, were born the year that Doggy Style came out, right? I mean, they are they they're youngins. Um and <laughs> yeah, right. And one of the things that really kind of blew my mind this year was learning just kind of how not many of them really take kind of those very conspicuous enactments of masculine criminality in hip hop that's seriously anymore. Like they, they, they don't at least, I mean, and this is, you know, a sample of 20 students at a large Southern university in the, in the U S right. Uh, but you know, 'Cause there's a there's a few local um kind of New Orleans and Baton Rouge rappers, right? Like Kevin Gates, uh, Boozy Badass, um, and some others who who enact what we, you know, I would I would characterize as as the mark of criminality. Um or before I went to prison, see murder. Uh Chicago also has a, a hip hop scene that's that's very bound up in, in a lot of quite tangible criminality, a lot of a lot of fatal shootings, a lot of imprisonments. So um I'm I'm, I'm Born and raised in the Chicago suburbs, so oh yeah, so I, you got it for both ends, yeah. Uh, but but my students just were not taking it seriously, and this this kind of spanned uh, gender and and race in the classroom. So it, it it kind of raised this interesting question, just in terms of kind of what what is a performative's shelf life, right? And and when does it move on to another form? When does the musical genre that you know most often embodied it have to are not happy, but it adapts and it changes, and and sometimes someone trying to do what you know, Easy E did very persuasively in the eighties and nineties doesn't do it as persuasively for some audiences.
0: Yeah, well, and and you're right because I kind of I mean to me this book feels so relevant, but of course I also grew up with a lot of these artists, so I mean, I guess yeah, from a vantage point as somebody much younger, why would you? So the t- I mean, I do think the tying it to Trayvon Martin and and sort of the sort of newly emerging marks of criminality that are not necessarily gangster rap, but aren't not that, aren't part of that trajectory was, was really, really astute move on your part. Um, and of course it was, it was a question that was begged by the book. So you, you aptly probably knew you weren't going to get away without that answering that question. Yeah. Well, so we've talked, we've kind of referenced a lot of these artists. Um, do you want to maybe dive into a specific, um, maybe an album cover or a specific kind of, Artists, I mean, there's a lot of them, right? You've got Snoop Dogg, you've got Tupac, you've got uh, Eazy-E, all the members NWA. So we talked maybe about the NWA straight out of Compton because it's kind of the most – it's had it's had sort of a current renaissance. But we could really talk about any of these particular performances of the Mark since we've kind of gotten the theory, I think, pretty well established.
1: Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you know, NWA was the first one I kind of dove into and because it, it – as, as the project kind of took form, it just took on a chronological form and, you know, NWA was by no means the first rap group to kind of engage in gangster tropes, but they were the ones who, who kind of perfected it, right. And, and turned it into something that was, you know, had mass market kind of crossover appeal, um, made a lot of money and, and inspired, um, heavy reaction from the, um, from the FBI, um, among, among other people, uh, in, in a lot of respects though, um, you know, the, the, the second set of case studies, right, where we're talking about Dre when he goes solo, and then when you know he kind of recruits Snoop Dogg, and Snoop Dogg pursues his own recording career. I don't. I I really enjoyed working through that one because I think in in a lot of ways it had some of the richer context, right? Because you had the Los Angeles uprising, you had. Kind of very in earnest, kind of escalation of the war on crime. You know, Clinton is re-elected or elected for the first time in '92. Um, So and he's he's president during during the Los Angeles uprising. So you know, there's a ton of of moving parts there that make it really fascinating. And another part of it that that always struck me was so NWA. And and many other gangsta artists. So you know a, a southern example of gangster rap at the time would be the Ghetto Boys, right? And and their kind of the aesthetic of their music is very very aggressive, right? It it sounds violent. It sounds angry, right? And that was certainly true of some of Dre's work. And 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 Snoop Dogg had a couple tracks on um, on Doggy Style that that had a very kind of we're, were performing in an angry register. But, but the most, most of it was, was joyful. I mean, it was just, you know, if you, if you look at the videos for, you know, any Dre or Snoop Dogg single during this period and, and a lot of G funk work, right. Um, at that time.
0: Oh yeah. Especially if you think of the B level artists, like Warren G and Nate Dogg, I mean, they were not, they were very much just like, like they. when well, you make a point at some point that like some some of these songs on the chronic and some of this kind of start to this leisure like the leisure and the, so it becomes less about like crime as a means of like economic right? It's, it's kind of weird because it starts to become almost comfortable and cool and less sharp. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I guess a lot, because a lot of these, yeah, a lot of the songs featured on many of these albums and also the ones that were not sort of major successes, but minor successes that haven't stood, stood the test of time. They're very, yeah, they're very kind of upbeat and sort of almost like joyful about the whole entire ordeal.
1: Yeah. And it's, it, it's coming in the midst of, you know, this gang truce movement after the riots and, and also in the midst of this, this crackdown on, among other things, outdoor parties <laughs> and you're.
0: Oh yeah. Well, you go back to this. Cause I didn't know this. I thought this was really cool. Well, yeah. will you go back to the truce after the riots and then the like anti cruising, no party legislation thing. Yeah. Cause this was really neat. And I didn't know about this. before.
1: No, neither did I. And, and where I got a lot of the context for this is, uh, you know, if, if folks, folks listen in. Um, of, who are interested in kind of the, the political economy and history of hip hop. Um, another, another book that I, I think can be very useful is uh Jeff Chang's, uh, can't stop, won't stop. Uh, Jeff Chang is a music journalist and, and, and his, his book was really kind of indispensable for me in terms of some of this historicization and th- this piece in particular, but, um, yeah, after, after the uprising, um, you know, after, after the Rodney King verdict and everything, there was this, uh, you know, just very palpable shift in, in LA, particularly in South Central. And there was a, I mean, I mean, somewhat short lived, but actually at the time, quite successful truce movement between, uh, varying rival gangs, most conspicuously the Bloods and the Crips. And, um, you know, even, even police admitted that it was, it was, Effective, <laughs> that, that you know, gang-related violence at the time was was diminishing quite significantly, and uh, you you even a lot of kind of reformed gang members. So you know, someone else I've written about in the past is uh, Stanley Tookie Williams, who was uh, a co-founder of the Crips and was executed for a murder that uh, many folk, myself included, believe he didn't commit. Um, and while on prison, he you know atoned for apologized for founding the Crips and became this anti-gang activist. And he was an anti-gang activist who had no interest in working with the state, right? He, he did not want police involved. He did not. Work.
0: Well, sure. Because, because they, probably, probably in his view, they're yeah, a gang. I mean, in right. a way, right? So,
1: yeah.
0: Oh, sorry. I just knocked also, my table. So, so, about
1: so
0: I got so amped up. I just
1: started throwing shit. Fun. You know what I mean? Love it. <laughs> I don't know. I, I get there. I do that. Um, so he, He's kind of one example of I think there's this kind of broader kind of kind of pattern of you know kind of community-oriented work um among many marginalized communities who who definitely you know are are seeking the resources that they are entitled to from from state actors, uh but don't see particularly the carceral state as as an entity that's going to solve problems, right? That it it needs to be, you know, in this case, gang members working together to to improve things so you know that that truce movement played itself out in a variety of ways um and one was was leisure recreation style right and um you know outdoor barbecues and parks in cities such as los angeles and you know when when black bodies assemble white people tend to get freaked out And that's what began happening that, uh, you know, the LAPD kind of formed this narrative in their head that, Oh, this truce really is just the gangs joining forces so they can come after the police. Right. So they can, um, you know, kill more cops, even though they weren't killing a lot of cops at, at at any point. Right. Um, you know, police officer fatality rates, uh, consistently are, are fairly low relative to, to other jobs. And, and, you know, the, the, the narrative of the cop killer, right. It was, it was a revenge fantasy for a lot of rappers and it was a, you know, anti-black paranoid fantasy for, for a lot of white folks. So, you know, the, so the very leisure practices that were kind of giving expression to this truce movement then became criminalized by, uh, by the state um, and, and also by other institutions, right. Uh, schools, for instance, and, and and this I actually remember quite clearly. You know, going going to middle school and high school during this period. You know, heavy kind of regulation of sagging jeans. Um, you know, various colors that could be worn. Uh, you
0: know. Yep, my my high school had such a bit. That was. It was at 90. Yeah. So it was a couple years later, but, but these were, these were older laws, but when, yeah, when I remember being in high school, there was a lot of these regulations and I sort of knew at the time they were gang related, but I thought about this when yeah. I read the
1: book. So yeah, so black, black youth in terms of their, their enactments of you know various vernacular practices became itself criminalized. So we're, we're no longer, you know, talking about, you know, drug dealing, violence, et cetera, where we're talking about, Playing music we're talking about driving a low riding car you know around town with no particular destination um, thing things that again have always been true right um, you know that the history of the LAPD and a lot of other police departments are, are bound up in among other things that you know historically black neighborhoods tend to be black tend to be neighborhoods in which folks uh, you know hang out in front of the house right gather on the street together um, you know, I mean, here in Baton Rouge, that's, in many people's minds, a marker of a, a dangerous neighborhood, right? <laughs> that, that you have, you know, black bodies assembled out front rather than, you know, in primarily white neighborhoods, you know, we, we hide in our backyards, right? Um, so, you know, white folks don't always know how to read historically black leisure practices, and as a result you know, go to the most readily available tropes for it. And one of those readily available tropes is, is that of criminality. Right. So, so have you,
0: have you read Vivian's, uh, Brad Vivian stuff on um, the topoi of witnessing the commonplace witnessing? No, I haven't. Well, it's interesting too, because I was thinking you, you could almost, I mean, based on the book you wrote, you could almost make an inventory of all of the things that white people are scared of that they think means black people are out to get them. And you can see it just repeated, right? I mean, this book is almost an inventory of here, are all the things that we're always reading as criminal that really, like, I mean, I don't know. it would be interesting to see the stats on how many police officers have been shot responding to violent reports from black neighborhood barbecues. Like it's got to be pretty low, right? It does, however, and this is a weird, totally off tangent, but I'm just so into like the 90s. It does give me kind of a new respect for the movie Friday. Oh. Which I sort of always never really like I liked it because you know, I was from my time, but I don't know, I don't know, know that I necessarily like, loved it the way that other people loved it, but there is this way in which it's kind of it makes highly legible some of these leisure practices that could right that kind of like it, it's sort of like the other side of what is being shown in like these gangster rap narratives that, of course in some ways just reinforce what white people kind of were always paranoid about yeah and makes it intelligible as like a socialization practice instead of like a criminal practice right so it it, it kind of gives your whole book kind of gives Friday a new like sense of gravitas for me, which I was happy about now I want to go
1: watch it good, I'm glad yeah I'm glad. <laughs> I love that movie and, and yeah, yeah a lot of and I mean to be clear also it was it was kind of a hindsight moment as I was working through it too where I was like oh that's what that's what this movie was was up to yeah uh, it's
0: just it's an interesting aside,
1: yeah. But it but it also speaks to you know I think the the legibility of communal practices um, across uh, positionalities and and how how often illegible they are and you know illegibility you know is is often an invitation to to violence right to to feeling threatened and that that in many respects you know is i mean kind of the the history of gangsta in so many ways right i mean i mean going even even when we're talking about like fuck the police um or or other tracks that you know so much of the genre was was working within this um kind of signifying tradition right that that it was not intended to be taken literally right but yeah you know, the the folks who were not in on the joke also happened to be among the most powerful people in u s civil society at the time and that manifested as senate hearings as you know parental advisory stickers um and and a ramped up war on crime
0: yeah I mean, I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago well when when trump i don't know if he'd been elected but he was almost he was he maybe it was just toward the very end of the election campaign, but snoop Dogg made a anti trump track, and It was like not Trump, but you could tell it was Trump and he, and he, and he fired, like pointed his finger and like fired a like fake gun at him. And Trump wanted him prosecuted under some kind of hate speech law for like basically essentially like paramount tantamount to threatening the murder of the president. Right. Yeah. And it was just like, see, this is so ironic because, and yet meanwhile, multiple times at, at my institution the last couple of years, people have worn blackface quote unquote, as a joke or quote unquote, ironically, as if I don't know what irony is. And it's totally the only people who are mad about it are black folks, right? Because for white people, it's like, well, it was ignorant and stupid, but it's just performative. It's like, well, it isn't, but the then can you just make the same argument about gangster rap then?
1: You can, but they don't want to, right?
0: but we yeah, don't, yeah. Right? yeah yeah can you yeah Brian's like yeah in fact I did make the argument it's this book you're interviewing yeah, yeah. me about
1: did you not remember that's what oh, we were. No, doing no here. no I'm just I'm just saying that like I mean it's it's I mean all the available evidence is there right to, to suggest that, yeah yeah it's, it's like grateful I mean thinking thinking back again to to the the Trayvon um, Martin example right I mean yeah he was he was tweeting pictures of himself wearing grills flicking off the the camera you know Using kind of gangster vernacular practices. And and I'm still pretty convinced he was better behaved at his age than I was. Um,
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a really, right. Yeah. yeah.
1: But, but it gets, it gets labeled not as, you know, a 17 year old being a a 17 year old, right. That, you know, just a a teenager talking shit on Twitter, right. Like, like I. Yeah. Just right. Exactly. Would have done myself. Um, Rather it becomes this, you know, indicator of Martin being always already criminal and therefore warranting uh, Zimmerman suspicion and violence. Right.
0: Yeah. Gosh. Well, that was a bummer note to end it on. We went from G funk barbecues. And of course um, we didn't even get to talk about the regulator song, which is the absolute best song of that era. (laughs) It damn good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we're coming up on an hour and I always hate to abuse the listener's time by keeping going, but this was just, it's just, it also, I will say though, the fact that we've barely skimmed on some of the more specific instantiations of the mark of criminality in the book does kind of speak to the depth and the richness of the book, which is another reason why people should, um, if they were intrigued by the interview, actually go out and read it for themselves. So before we sort of get into that like closing line though, do you want to say anything else about the book or bring out anything else that you found especially captivating or interesting to talk about?
1: Um, I think, I mean, in in terms of the way, I guess it kind of informed me and, you know, my in, in addition to my approach to just kind of scholarship and studying anti blackness and and race more broadly um was was kind of this this question of of travel of movement of of capture of escape as as kind of a kind of a heuristic and you know a way of really yeah. I, I, I think anyone who studies, you know, rhetoric or some other mode of public discourse, you know, if you tell them, okay, crime is socially constructed, et cetera, et cetera, it would be like a no, a no brainer, but to, to kind of actually kind of take stock and what that really means and what that entails, right. Is, is I think quite rich, uh, not just in terms of the way we, we read public discourse, uh, but, but also kind of in the way we just, just kind of occupy space and, and live lives. Right. Um, yeah, you know, for instance, you know, myself and, and my my partner, we have, you know, over the course of our lives lived in cities, um, and, and parts of cities that are, you know, widely associated with violent crime. You know, before moving to Louisiana, we lived in Detroit. Uh, we lived for a year in New Orleans, now we live in Baton Rouge, right? These are these are all cities with high, you know, what are measured as high crime rates and are largely associated with high crime rates. And um yeah, I mean all all of that stuff's accurate as far as it goes right i mean I sometimes hear gunshots right um i also know that that has nothing to do with me right the, so i don't know if you're familiar with Nextdoor, that the app right I, I, I think oh man it's wild i mean if you want to if you want to see the market criminality uh playing out in terms of kind of white iterations of it uh do or don't download Nextdoor. but it's it's basically like an app that you download so people it's basically like a a neighborhood Facebook, yeah. You know, so, so I mean, it's functional in some ways in that people can post things they want to sell, or you know. They have oh, okay. I thought it was like for. Snitching. Well, no, it's for that too because it, there's there's a, there's a crime um, and safety section of it, right? Ah, uh, so you you post, yeah. Okay. So it's just like, hey, hmm. I, I saw these two black teenagers riding their bikes around at you know one in the morning. I'm like, <laughs> you want to know? what I'm Doing I'm at one morning suspicious. when I was sixteen, man. But, uh, it's, I know. it's just, uh, I, know. I mean, th- those those performatives are still very much available, and they they you know maybe people are not having knockdown dragouts in public life with regard to the content of of rap lyrics. Uh, they are still reading bodies in, in in very particular ways and and seeing them seeing them as threats and and just you know the kind of intense kind of vulnerability um that often the least vulnerable bodies can feel right when encountering racial difference um it, it's pretty astonishing and um and i think that's that's why you know i was glad i was pushed to attend to affect right In, in the project because it is it's felt right it's, it's very intense and that's that's something to take seriously um, because with with Without attending to that element of it, we—I don't—I don't know that we stand a chance at confronting and, and hopefully stopping it.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, yeah, and there's there is for for my affect people in the audience. There's a lot to like about this book. I'm a discourse person, so I always go straight to the language, but. Um... Yeah, I feel like that feeling stuff and no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I mean and it is important, right? Because people because part of the because whatever the counter is to this is going to have to tap into the fact that this is a felt experience on both ends not just a discursive and the like non the an the old school version of it. Yeah, well, it was a fabulous book. Um, I can't, I wish we had more time because we could talk about this, but you know, and some, and some, some hosts do, they go two hours to talk about a book, but I just like, I couldn't listen for that long. Plus, honestly, at this point, we've covered everything. I think that's the essential themes and, and really the rest of this really needs to be a read experience because there is something kind of lost in conversing about a book that you wrote to be read. And also the images. I mean, there's a lot of really fascinating images in here. There's album covers and there's different kind of like screenshots of various uh, these various mark of criminality practices. And you're just not going to get a lot of that from this discussion. But I think I think we've uh, squeezed out from it what we could for an hour.
1: Oh, yeah. No, no. I, great I had a boss. yeah
0: it was awesome well once again I'll just remind everyone um, that uh, that Brian's book the mark of criminality is available from the University of Alabama press it's also on Amazon as all things are these days and if you're not interested in buying a copy for yourself we always do like to recommend we'd love to support our university presses especially uh, Alabama keeps their rhetoric series going strong so you can always reach out to your public or university library college library and uh, and recommend that they pick up a copy and I do think this is the kind of book that would have a lot of public purchase so even even at public libraries, you know, recommending that they kind of keep these books on hand, um, even if you don't necessarily want to read them yourself, can be a great way to circulate the book and circulate the ideas among um, a general audience. And so I guess we'll wrap up with um, asking you if you have any books you'd like to recommend for us to interview on another episode of the New Books Network. I
1: would. Uh, I mean, obviously there are a lot of choices. A lot of people are doing really important work, but, uh, but one I just recently read and had the pleasure of uh, sitting on a panel about uh, at a recent conference is uh, Ursula Orr's new book, uh, Lynching, uh, Violence, Rhetoric, and American Identity. Uh, she makes some really powerful arguments about lynching as a cultural form that is is central to the production of American identity. Uh, it is um, it's a brilliant work. It's a devastating work. Uh, it's a remarkably well written book by um, a scholar who is, I think, a top notch intellect and a marvelous human being as well. So her her book definitely warrants a, a lot of attention, uh, especially. I'm um, hard-pressed to think of a time when it wouldn't, but, but it feels, it feels timely. Um, and it feels. Perfect.
0: Well, and it's a great, and it's a great, um, follow-up to, to this book. So I will get in touch with Ursula and see if maybe she I'll drop on. Can I name drop you? You think that'll get me in the door? Oh yeah,
1: yeah. By all means. So I mean, I mean I,
0: people just do not like; they just avoid their emails like crazy.
1: <laughs> true. Well, especially now with summer, we're all just like, okay, later.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't expect a lot of interviews coming out in the summer because I can't get people on the horn. Well, Brian, thank you for the recommendation. It was awesome to talk yeah. to you, and I just really thoroughly enjoyed this book. So thank you from the bottom of thank my heart you. for thank writing it. Watch. Um, I hope it gets the wide circulation that it deserves. And when's an, what? You got another book coming out next week or a year from now? Like when? When's the next one?
1: Um, I am, I, I got kind of, well, I got a few, I, I don't have a deadline on any of them. I've kind of got three working ideas for books, but Ooh. I'm. Not- I'm so working we can on have many books left to come. go. Uh, one's co-authored, and then two are two are sole authored. But um, but oh, I'm, that's exciting. Yeah, I'm jazzed. Um, but um, I'm working on on one over the summer, and then I'm doing some archive work for another. Um, I'm on sabbatical in the fall, so uh, that's what I'll be doing.
0: Oh, cool. Well, keep us posted when it's out. Um, you can be my second repeat of all time, and then maybe my first repeat if you really get on it.
1: All right, I, I will. That that's some motivation. <laughs> I will. I'll get at it. All right.
0: Well, it was great talking to you. Have a great restful summer. And I guess if I don't see you before NCA, I'll see you in November.
1: Sounds perfect. All right. Take care, Brian. Thanks, Lee. Bye.